Well, last week we were introduced to Cornelius in chapter 10, verses 1 to 8. Cornelius was a Roman military man, a centurion of the Italian regiment, a Gentile, and that's important. That's important to what is about to happen. We have seen already in the early church the outreach to Jews. We have seen how the gospel went beyond Jews to Samaritans. And now we are seeing that God, through Peter, is opening the door of the gospel to Gentiles. Now that was an astounding thing to even Peter to consider in that day. And I'll explain more about that as we go along. We found out last week that Cornelius was a God-fearer. That meant a Gentile attracted to monotheism, attracted to the moral and ethical teachings of the Old Testament. God-fearers worshipped Israel's God, but they didn't become full converts. They did not become proselytes. They did not experience circumcision but they enjoyed the worship of Yahweh and the teachings of the Old Testament. That's who Cornelius was. Now what we're going to see today, starting in verse 9, is Peter, at God's prompting and direction, please never miss God's hand over everything that's happening here. This is not just some random event in history. God's hand is all over what's happening in Acts chapter 10 actually starting in 9 with the conversion of Saul. At God's prompting and direction, Peter will open the door of the gospel, the door of faith to the Gentiles, that they might become full members of the church, the body of Christ, on an equal basis with Jewish Christians. That was an astounding thought in that day. We looked last week at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, which tells us the church is one body made up of Jew and Gentile together. One body made up of Jew and Gentile together. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul says this, Through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. God is about to do something remarkable. Remarkable. Before he sends Peter to Cornelius, before he sends Peter to present the gospel to Cornelius, Peter has to be convinced that it's okay even to what? Step into a Gentile's home. So such was the prejudice of the teachers, the rabbis, the Jewish leaders. They took the dietary restrictions of the Jews, they took the dietary law of the Jews, and they extended it to say Jews may not even step into the home of a Gentile. They called Gentiles dogs. They could not do business with them or interact with Gentiles. All because they took something that God meant for good, for an illustration for his people of the Old Testament, the dietary laws, and they 
misapplied them in this situation. That's why Peter has to be trained first by God. That's why the events of chapter 10 that we're going to read about and study right now from verses 9 to 23a, Peter has to have his prejudices, Peter has to have his legal attitude toward the Gentiles dealt with by God. Peter, at this point, to some degree, is a legalist. A legalist. And God has to deal with the legalism in his heart. So that's what we see happening here in Acts chapter 10. God dealing with Peter's prejudices. God dealing with Peter's legalistic attitude toward the Gentiles. And he uses the everyday, and I love this, he uses the everyday circumstance of Peter's hunger to bring him to the place where he can accept that the regulations concerning clean and unclean animals are abolished. Now, Jesus had taught the disciples that, but they hadn't caught it as they hadn't caught many things that Jesus taught them. Peter was especially good at avoiding what Jesus was teaching. And God uses his hunger, and we're going to see that in a second, to bring him to the place where he can accept that the regulations concerning clean and unclean animals are abolished. And the extension of those laws wrongly to the Gentiles, making them unclean, are also thus abolished. A legalistic lifestyle, a legalistic attitude adds to God's word. We're going to see, this is only introductory, we're going to see some characteristics of legalism this morning. A legalistic lifestyle adds to God's word, has a prideful attitude about keeping his commandments, at least as they see them, or makes a personal conviction in a gray area into the standard for other believers. A legalistic lifestyle cannot produce spiritual growth. In fact, it's just the opposite. A legalistic lifestyle by a believer hinders spiritual growth because it focuses a person to concentrate on the exterior and never touches the heart. Never touches the heart. We'll see some characteristics in a few moments of legalism. We'll talk about some guidelines for dealing with the legalists in our life, in our lives. And if you've ever dealt with a legalist, you know it's not easy. Because they always know what you should be doing. They always know whether you should have a TV in your home or not. They always know what kind of food you should be eating, and particularly they enjoy the Old Testament restrictions and want to see you enjoy them. They tell you where, whether you can drink alcohol or not. In the New Testament, Paul and Peter deal with sacrifices to idols. How, how does that, what do we do about meat sacrifice to idols? They Talk, can we eat it? Can we not eat it? Can it be thrown away? What do we do with it? 
In the, in the New Testament, it was what day of the week should we worship, Romans 14. What day of the week should we worship? Well, we'll, we'll talk about some characteristics of legalism. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 10. Look at verse 9. About noon the following day, this is the day after the angels went to Cornelius and told Cornelius to send people to get Peter, to Joppa to get Peter. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Now, normal times of Jewish prayer were morning and evening. But a few times in the scripture, you see people praying at noon. Peter prayed at noon. Apparently, he prayed instead of two times a day, prayed three times a day. David prayed three times a day, according to Psalm 55, 17. Daniel prayed three times a day instead of two, according to Daniel 6, 10. So Peter's up on the roof. Why? Because that is a quiet place. It's a quiet place where he could pray. And he becomes hungry. Now, I love this. Apparently, what's happening is Peter's up there, and he's praying, and lunch is being made below him. And the aroma is drifting up. Like, for instance, when we have fellowship lunches, right? And the aroma of that food, especially if you get near the activity center, the aroma of that food just captures you and you say, when is Joe going to be done so we can go eat? That's okay. I'm up here saying, when are you going to be done so we can go eat? <laughs> so it's, a, it's in the most common of circumstances. Peter is going up to pray. He smells the aroma of lunch being made, and God makes that the occasion to teach him something new. Is that awesome or what? Think about that. Think about how great that is. One writer put it this way, God frequently reveals himself not only in, but also by means of our human situations. Don't ever overlook the mundane experiences of your life because it may be in that mundane experience that God is trying to teach you something new or teach me something new. That's what he did to Peter. This is pretty important. The door of faith, the door of the gospel is going to be open to the Gentiles. Shouldn't we have a great production? Maybe we could get Daryl Zanuck from the grave to do a great production. No great production. Peter's on the roof praying and he's hungry because he smells food. And God uses that to teach him something new. So please, never, never overlook the importance of the mundane, commonplace things that happens in your life and my life because God may be using those. To, as he did here with Peter, to teach us something new. He became hungry, verse 10, and he wanted something to eat. And while 
The meal was being prepared. He fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contains all, contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. The word trance there means he was standing outside himself. In other words, it was as if he left his body and began to look at the scene that he's in. He fell into a trance while he's hungry and he has a vision of all of these animals, clean and unclean. It was a mixture of clean and unclean animals. Animals that were okay for him to eat. Animals that were not okay for him to eat. It was all on this sheet. There are lots of ideas about where the sheet came from or why he saw a sheet. I love, I love it when you get a chance to study the Word of God and you get to widely study people's viewpoints. And some of our scholars say, well, what happened was, is there was a boat. You know, after all, there was a seaport, Joppa. And there was a boat, and Peter happened to see the sail waving. And I turned into a sheet being lowered from heaven with all of these clean and unclean animals. We don't know what prompted him to think about that, what prompted him to have this vision, this trance. We do know that it was at God's instigation because God was teaching him. So... He has this vision, this trance-like state, all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds, a mixture of clean and unclean. Now what's the reason for that? Is God simply interested in food here? And the answer is no, because what had happened among the Jews is that the dietary restrictions, the dietary laws about clean and unclean animals that could be used in worship, that could be used for food. The issue was that they had turned them, God didn't do this, but they took God's law and they added to it and they applied it to Gentiles. Therefore, Gentiles were unclean. Therefore, Gentiles were considered dogs. Therefore, they, Jews, were not allowed to go into the home of a Gentile. And apparently Peter bought into some of this because why would God waste his time with Peter if Peter's mind didn't need to be changed? And so that's, that's the, the background here. One writer said of the dietary laws, the intent of these laws of separation was to constantly remind the Jewish people that they were set apart to God and that they were to honor God in every aspect of their lives. But the trouble is... To the Jews, it became rigid, rig, yeah, I'll try it again, ritualistic. It became ritualistic. It became tradition. It became dead observance. And so that's what's going on here. That's what's happening here. The dietary laws of the Mosaic law <coughs> had been extended to 
prohibit contact with Gentiles in their homes. Legalism rears its ugly head. Legalism rears its ugly head. Well, verse 13, Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 14, Surely not, Lord. Now there's a confused man. Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, surely not, Lord. Those are three words that don't go together. Do you notice that? How does surely not, Lord, go together? If he's Lord, then surely I'll do what you say. But Peter says, surely not, Lord. I I love it. Charles Ryrie said, if he is Lord, we cannot say not so. And if one says not so, he cannot be Lord. Can't have it both ways. When we're saying no to the Lord, he's not the Lord at that time in our lives. We're saying no. W. Graham Scroggy, uh, really reaching back to one of the really older expositors, said, you can say Lord... And you can say, not so, but you cannot say, not so, Lord. I like that. I like that. The interesting thing about this is, by the way, in in Greek, the word is medamus for the refusal. It was a polite refusal. So at least when Peter was denying the Lord, he was being polite about it. Many have pointed out that Peter had a pattern of refusing God's will. Peter had a pattern of refusing God's will. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 22 and 23, when Jesus predicted his suffering, coming suffering to the disciples, you know what Peter said? Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Not so, Lord. Thank goodness you and I are beyond that stage, right? We never say no to the Lord. (laughs) In John chapter 13 and verse 8, when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples and he came to Peter and Peter said, I am so going to enjoy this. No, that's not what happened. He said, never, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus was the master of the one-liner. He said to him, well, if I don't wash your feet, I have no, you have no part with me. Peter immediately gets on the bandwagon and he says, then wash me all over, give me a bath. Don't stop at my feet. But the point is he refused. Peter had a pattern of refusing God's will. But we see here, as many writers have pointed out, the marks of legalism in Peter's life. The marks of legalism in Peter's life that Peter had to have the Lord deal with so that he could take the next step in God's taking the gospel through Peter, through Paul, through the apostles, 
through the disciples to the Gentiles, establishing the church. Peter, one writer said, was living in the age of grace, but still submitting to the law. Now, I just want to spend, um, well, probably a good part of our time left looking at legalism. I want to look at the characteristics of legalism. And uh, I'd like to look at some uh, ways to deal with the legalist in our lives. Now, as I said, legalism can encompass so many things. Uh, for instance, years and years ago, when, when the church was young, a um, couple of years old, I remember I was teaching a men's group, and one of the men in the men's group, without any reservation, looked at all of us and said, no Christian should have a TV in their home. Now, you know, the thing is, you might agree with that. He, I, I would love to know what he thinks today with all the garbage on TV. By the way, let me recommend, watch Mountain Men. <laughs> it's not garbage. It's fascinating. You can learn how to forge knives. You can learn how to hunt and trap. You can learn how to trek 350 miles through the snow of Alaska. How exciting is that? But I digress. <laughs> you know, you may agree with him. You may say, you're, you're right. But his attitude, of his legalistic attitude of, if you don't accept what I say is so, then you're not living up to God's standard. Last time I looked, I've been reading the Bible through from cover to cover for a lot of years now, I haven't seen television mentioned. Maybe it's there and I missed it. If one of you has seen it, please let me know. But it's not there. Therefore, it's not one of the thou shalts or thou shalt not that are in the Bible that you and I better follow. It's a disputable area. But not to this gentleman. As I mentioned earlier, it can be about food, it can be about diet, it can be about alcohol. Uh, I've, had, I've seen legalists about how many children you should have. Now, I believe everyone should have as many children as God blesses them with. And it's his will for them to have. But I don't believe anybody can tell somebody else what the right number is for them. I've seen legalism applied to how you educate your children. And the thing is, I may agree with all of those positions. I may, I may agree about educating children. I may agree about family. I, I may agree with those things, but I will resist the legalist who makes a law out of it. The, the, first, the first place that I came upon legalism, I, I was a new Christian. I, as most of you know, I was 25 years old when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I, had, I knew nothing about the Bible. Uh, 
it, it, to me, the Bible was a, a book of magic, uh, and 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 it was a holy book. So you had to you had a Bible, and most of people in my orb didn't have Bibles. But if you happened to get one, you took it to the priest, and he'd do this whole stuff, and it would be a holy book. And what that meant was not that its words were holy, not that its words were binding, but that if you dropped it on the ground, you had to pick it up and kiss it. So I didn't know much about the Bible, except that you better kiss it if you dropped it. That was it. So having become a believer in Christ, the, the town I grew up in, had a Bible Institute every Monday night. It was the most awesome thing ever. Three classes every Monday night. I learned by leaps and bounds about the Bible. And Pastor Gary Burt, who was a youth pastor at one of the local churches, pastors from the local churches would be the teachers of these courses. And uh, Gary Burt was a Southerner. I believe it was from Louisiana, but I, I honestly don't know. Uh, I don't remember. It's been many, many, many years ago now. Anyhow, Gary is the first one that introduced me. We were studying the book of Romans, and of course you can't study Romans without getting into the concept of disputable things, and you, also the extension of that to legalism. And he is the first one, that, to my remembrance, who introduced the concept of the legalist or legalism to me. And he did it in a funny way. He was talking about the fact that as a youth pastor, there are some things that in the South were taboos and you'd better never do with your youth group. That were exactly opposite from some things in the North that you could any time do with your youth group. For instance... One was in the South, you could not have mixed bathing. Now, when I first heard that term, I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> yeah. But how many of you know what mixed bathing is? Okay, it's co-ed swimming. It's co-ed swimming for, in, for youth in this instance. And Gary Burt, Pastor Burt said that in the South, it was taboo to have co-ed swimming. In the North, where he was ministering in Pennsylvania, nobody cared if boys and girls swam together. It was a common, ordinary thing. I was talking to Kathy about this the other day, and she grew up in the South. And uh, she said, oh, yeah, I know all about mixed bathing. Whenever our youth group would go to a conference or a campground or something, boys and girls had to swim separately. So that was taboo. In the South, it was no problem in the North. Whereas... In the South, dancing was no problem. You could have a dance. You could go as a Christian teenager to a dance and dance up a storm. Not, not like that. You'd just be a dork. Uh, but uh, uh, you could dance up a storm. 
Whereas in the South, it was a taboo. Excuse me, dancing in the North, I'll get it right, was a taboo among Christian youth in the North, especially Pennsylvania. That was my introduction to legalism. Now, uh, on a more serious note, I was reading a couple of weeks ago in the Daily Bread, and I was reading the testimony of one of the authors that I found fascinating. Let me share it with you. He said this, I applied for a position in a Christian organization years ago and was presented with a list of legalistic rules having to do with the use of alcohol, tobacco, and certain forms of entertainment. We expect Christian behavior from our employees, was the explanation. So he said, I could agree with this list because I, for reasons most unrelated to my faith, didn't do those things. But my argumentative side, and this is where I like this writer immediately, he said, my argumentative side thought, why don't they have a list about not being arrogant, insensitive, harsh, spiritually indifferent, and critical, yet none of these were addressed. Wouldn't that be a better list to require of your employees? But see, legalism majors on the minors. It majors on the minors. The writer went on to say, following Jesus can't be defined by a list of rules. It's a subtle quality of life that's difficult to quantify, but can best be described as beautiful. I like that. You see, Jesus is trying to make us beautiful. It's going to take a lot of work for me. But at any rate, he's trying to make us beautiful. Beautiful believers. He's trying to make you and me into works of art that he can show off. And the trouble is that you and I want to be paint-by-number Christians. And you could not call a paint-by-number painting a work of art. Oh, it looks like, I remember when I was a kid, I loved those things. You guys know what I'm talking about? The paint-by-number? I got the Mona Lisa. How cool is that? And I followed it carefully. And when I was done, it sort of looked like the Mona Lisa. But it wasn't a work of art. I'll never forget standing in front of the real thing in the Louvre in Paris. I was so in awe, I stupidly put my camera down and didn't take a picture. Today, I so regret that. You were allowed to do that. But I digress again. Okay. <laughs> Some characteristics of legalism. We, I, man, this is going to be tough. Uh, the legalist always believes they are holier because of what they will not do. The legalist always believes they are holier than others, holier than you because of what they will not do. The legalist makes sin out of what God has left to individual consciences. Thirdly, the legalist makes their personal conviction the standard for everyone else. Fourth, the 
True holiness and righteousness is seen not in what I do, but in my inward response to God, my inward response to God. Next, legalism kills the spirit of a church. One of the toughest things to deal with is legalism in your church and legalists in your church. It will always cause division. It will always cause division. So legalism kills the spirit of the church. There's no joy. There's always danger from the thought police. They're judging you for what you believe. And remember, these are disputable items. Finally, legalism cannot produce growth. It can only touch the exterior. Legalism cannot produce growth. It can only touch the exterior. Boy, I wish I had time to turn to Mark 7, verses 14 to 23, but maybe you could do that later. Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 23. Let me quickly, I'm going to jump ahead here because we want to get to the ordination of Chris. We've been looking forward to it. Um... little compact guide to the Christian life that we've been giving out, giving out for years in our welcome package is a great little book that uh, goes through great areas of the Christian life. And one of them uh, deals with the legalist and deals with disputable matters. And it points out that some things the Bible says, are all, some things in the Bible are always wrong. You always know you shouldn't do some things. And some things in the Bible that the Bible talks about are always right. You know that you should always do those. But what we're talking about when we're talking about legalism is that the things, what about the things the Bible doesn't mention explicitly? So though the Bible doesn't deal with every matter that could be dealt with explicitly, it does give guidelines. And uh, let me share, these are guidelines from the Compact Guide to the Christian Life. And I've honed down their list a little bit because their list is longer than, than what I want to share with you this morning. Guideline number one that I'm sharing from their list is this, obey your conscience even if it's ill-informed. You see, when you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have a conscience, but it's not yet a conscience informed by the Word of God because we haven't gotten into the Word of God yet, and our consciences need to be trained by the Word of God, and we, we need to be informed by the Word of God. So, the first thing is, obey your conscience even if it's ill-informed. What may happen is at some point, as you learn more of the will of God, as you study more excuse me, of the Word of God, you may change your mind about an item, but at the time that you are making a decision, if your conscience, even if it's ill-informed, says don't do it, then their principle is this, when in doubt, don't. Don't ignore your conscience and don't let others tell, talk you into something that you believe is wrong. Second guideline, give other Christians freedom to choose. Give other Christians freedom to choose. Do not judge them. In the disputable areas, okay? Number three, 
Limit your liberty in love. When you are dealing with a believer who is truly weak in the faith, they have a weak conscience or their, their biblical knowledge is weak, their convictions are weak, voluntarily restrain your freedom for a weaker brother. That's what the, Christ, that's what the Scripture calls for. But don't miss guideline four, which is this. You and I are under no obligation to limit our liberty for a Pharisee. You and I are under no obligation to limit our liberty for a Pharisee. I'll just quote from the book. Limit, limiting liberty and love doesn't mean you restrain your freedom whenever someone else complains. A Pharisee is someone who has strong convictions, is not tempted to act against his conscience, and is offended when you won't conform to his view. That's a Pharisee. That's a legalist. So refuse to give in to their pressure. You'd run no risk, the compact guide says, of causing them to stumble. A legalistic brother or sister is not in danger of stumbling. It's the weaker brother or sister who is. So you, have, you and I have no obligation to limit our liberty for a Pharisee. Guideline five, there are some questions that, help, that can help you and me to decide about a disputable item. And we're going to have more to say about this in coming weeks in the book of Acts, uh, about how to, how to be led by God. But right now, let me give you some questions that you and I might ask about an activity that we're not sure about. Number one, will this activity lead me into one of the sins listed in the Bible? Number two, is this activity profitable in some way? Number three, will this activity build me or someone else up spiritually? Number four, will this activity please me at someone else's expense? Next, can I thank God for this activity? Next, will this activity glorify God? Is it worth imitating? And finally, ask ourselves, does this follow Christ's example? Does this follow Christ's example? Well, verse 16, this happened three times. Immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. While Peter was, I'm back in Acts 10, 17. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, Peter's still trying to figure out what's going on here. By the way, he later does. He later says, I realize now that God wasn't talking about animals. He was talking about relationships with Gentiles. He was talking about no people being unclean as they thought Gentiles were. Peter made a leap there. When he understood that. Verse 20. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them. Cornelius' men for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men. I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied. We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God fearing man. Who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guest. He is taken 
giant steps in his life. And it's awesome. Well, something awesome is about to happen. You'll have to come back to find out what that is. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for teaching Peter and through him teaching us. Help us to be gracious to the people around us. Help us not to be judgmental in these areas that you have not addressed. But help us to be gracious. Help us to grow our consciences through your word and through the influence of the Spirit and through prayer. We pray in Jesus' name.